Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. I, uh, man, I love that song. And let's just, let's just make that our prayer this morning as we dive in, because we're going to dive into something, um, well, one of Jesus's more uh, controversial teachings. And so as we dive into that, I, I just, that's my prayer, that we we're reminded that God sees us and he loves us through and through. And so um, my, my name's Austin. <laughs> I'm not sure I said that. Good morning. Hello. Um, I'm glad you're here. Um, I'm glad to be up here and to have this opportunity. Um, and like I said, today we're going to spend some time in one of Jesus' Jesus's more controversial teachings. Um, but before we do that, I would like to do some pretending. Okay, so before we pretend, I, let me, I just got back from vacation. With, uh, my wife and I, we were on vacation with um, our family, and we have a two-and-a-half-year-old niece who loves to pretend. She loves to pretend. We pretend cooking. We pretended to, like, fix things. We pretended to, like, call each other on the phone, even though we were actually calling each other. It was still pretend, okay? She thought it was pretend. Thought it was hilarious. Okay? And so we just spent a whole lot of time pretending, and I totally thought this week, I was like, man, you know what? Th this fits. We're, we're gonna do, so we're going to do some pretending this morning, okay? So here we go. Everybody ready? Remember what it was like to pretend? We're going to pretend. So now we're pretending we are no longer at Waypoint. We are no longer at church, okay? You are actually at a rally of mine because I want you all to vote for me. I want you all to vote for me in the 2022 upcoming presidential election. I made that fine graphic. <laughs> the eagle's a little blurry, but that's all right. <laughs> so here we go, ready? And, and I just stressed a lot of you out, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay, pretending, right? All right, thank you all for being here this today at my rally. I'm honored to have your support. Listen, if you vote for me, I can assure you your life is not going to get easier. In fact, for many of you, your life is going to get much more difficult. Some of you might even die. Listen, if you vote for me, if you vote for me, in fact, listen, you can't vote for me today unless you hate your spouse, you hate your mom and your dad, you hate your children, and you even hate yourself. Unless you hate those things, you cannot vote for me today. Go vote. Are you guys going to vote for Austin 2022? Anybody? Anybody here going to vote for Austin 2022? Someone is. I'll take it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Like, I wouldn't vote for me either, right? And that's because when it comes to voting, we have our own, right, we have our own vision of what I want, of what we want our lives to look like, what we want our communities to look like, okay, what it's supposed to look like. We have this vision, and, and I'm going to vote for whoever I believe can best accomplish that vision and uphold that vision. And ideally, whoever I vote for, whoever I vote for is going to also uphold and support that vision of my life so that my life can get better and be better, not worse, not worse. Okay, because if I thought that voting for a politician was going to make my life worse, well, then I just wouldn't vote for them, right? That's, just, that's not how the office of a politician works in theory, 
right? It's supposed to make my life better by being a civil servant and representing and supporting my vision by the means of the government, right? In theory. So hate my family and myself? Like what an absolutely preposterous thing to say, right? Luke chapter uh, 14, 25 through 27. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he, Jesus, he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Was anyone slightly uncomfortable or confused after reading that? Okay, that's fine. It's okay, it's okay if you are. Jesus totally meant for you to be. And can I take a second just to say it's okay if you were? Like the first time I remember hearing this, it was actually from an atheist friend of mine. It was like, God wants you to hate your mom and your dad? Right? And so I was uncomfortable with the scripture. Now let me tell you, that's okay. And if you're ever uncomfortable with scripture, can I just encourage you to dig in? Don't just like skip past it, just read it and be like, oh, that was weird. Okay, next page. Like, I'm going to keep going. Or quit reading, right? Ask questions. Reread it. Like, read the chapter before, read the chapter after. Jesus, because Jesus frequently talked like this, using strong language to get people's attention. So that's, ex- that's exactly what I, what I hope and encourage you to do today. Pay attention. But I also think some of the uncomfortableness we feel here is because we have come to Jesus with some fundamental misunderstandings about who he is, what he came to do, and what he is calling us to do. Because I would argue that for most of us, at some point in coming to Jesus, we've actually viewed him like a politician, like a politician we voted for, right? Like I invited Jesus into my life, I've got issues that I want, I, I, I want Jesus to come deal with, like I need him to answer my prayers, to solve my problems, to give me comfort, and I'm viewing Jesus like a politician Because when my life falls apart, when my prayers aren't answered the way I think they should be, or if I'm still facing the same problems that I was before I invited Jesus into my life, and like this just isn't the vision I had for my life, and so I get upset. Like I voted for you, man. I've been praying to you. I even volunteered that one time. What is going on? This is the kind of life I get? That's how you know you've begun to view Jesus like a politician, as someone who's here to serve you and your needs and your vision of the, of the life that you want to live. And so when Jesus says something like this, he makes it abundantly clear that he is not here to serve your vision of life, and that it's actually precisely the opposite of that. And so when we reread this, I want to read this with a different filter in mind. I want to read this in one where we don't view Jesus as a politician, but more as like an experienced mountain guide, a guide who says, follow me, I know the terrain, I know this mountain, and I can see that storm coming. Follow me, it's not going to be easy. You might have to lose some of your stuff or all your stuff. You might even lose your life. And when we view Jesus like this, this passage takes on a whole new meaning because we know as a guide... 
He's not serving his own self-interest. He is actually, he actually has our own best interest in mind. He knows the path better than we do, and even though he might be asking us to do things that are difficult or even dangerous, he does so because he has our long-term well-being in mind at the expense of our short-term comfort. And so we're going to dive back into this passage together, and I would just encourage you as, as we read through this to, to see, put, on that, put on that lens, put on that filter, as though Jesus is trying to rescue you from the oncoming storm and lead you away from, from dead-end pathways and dangerous cliffs. Can we do that? All right, let's do it. Verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, we're going to pause right here. We're going to get very far. We're going to pause right here. Because you know what I said about digging into scripture? This is a part of that. Understanding, and this is honestly what you should, what you should do all the time. Context is so important when it comes to the scriptures, you guys. So we're going we're gonna to dive in here. We're going to understand the who, the when, the where. Because all of this is critical in understanding God's word. And so who is Jesus addressing here? The crowds. He's addressing the crowds. What crowds? Where did they come from? In Luke 9, we, we see Jesus, he turns his face towards Jerusalem. And so from Luke 9 to Luke 19, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he would, where he would die and be raised back to life uh, in order to accomplish the great act of redemption for us. And so while on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus is teaching, he's performing miracles through towns and villages, and as he's going, he's gathering crowds and attracting large groups of people, and many of them are on their way towards Jerusalem as well, because if you remember, Jesus is on his way towards Jerusalem to celebrate what? Passover, right? The Jewish pilgrimage, Hebrew pilgrimage, so they're, they're, going, they're going to celebrate Passover, so there's, all these, there's this large crowd, okay, and they're like, whoa, Jesus is doing really cool things, like he's healing people, he's casting out evil spirits, right, he's, he's teaching these amazing like, messages, like the Sermon on the Mount, right, he's doing all these cool things, and so he's doing all this, and he has all these crowds that are following him. Okay, and they just think he's sensational, they're in awe of Jesus, right, he's doing all these cool things, and we're talking crowds of like thousands, thousands of people, now, do you think everyone in the crowd understood Jesus? Was a follower of Jesus? Meaning that they, they grasped his identity and what he came to do? No, they probably didn't. No, because in fact, this is the same crowd that will be cheering and waving palm leaves as Jesus is entering his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. This is that same crowd who is then going to be disappointed when they realize Jesus isn't driving out the Romans out of the city. And instead of driving the Romans out of the city, no, he goes to the temple and drives people out of the temple. And they're like, what is going on? And then just a couple days later, they're the same crowd who's yelling, crucify him. Crucify him in front of Pontius Pilate. Just because you're in the crowd does not make you a follower of Jesus. And Jesus knew this. This is precisely why he turns here to this large crowd and he says what he says. Because he knows a crowd is not the same as a church. And he knows that just because a person is in a crowd... That doesn't mean that they're a disciple. He was very intentional when he, when he did this. He knew lots of people would decide to, to follow him in the crowd. 
right? They'd be like, oh, yeah, that Jesus guy, he's pretty cool. He's doing lots of cool things. Like, I totally want to be associated with that guy. Like, look at that. It's amazing. I'd totally be in the crowd. Like, absolutely. And that's cool and all, but Jesus wasn't interested in crowds. He was interested in people who intended to follow him, who intended to become his disciples. And so here he's sifting the crowd. Not because Jesus was mean or a jerk or anything like that. No, it's because he knows the terrain. He knows this mountain, and he knows it's not going to be easy, and he's looking for people who intend to follow him. And so he just says it. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, and yes, even your own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Who, who or what is, is Jesus sifting for again? Who is Jesus sifting for? Who is he looking for? Disciples. And how does he differentiate between them? How does he differentiate these disciples? Well, it's the same thing we might have been uncomfortable with before, right? In the first place, when he says, you got to hate your family, and you got to hate yourself. Like, what? Wait, wait, wait Jesus, I, I actually remember you saying, I, need, I have to love my enemies. Love my enemies and hate my family. What are you talking? This doesn't make any sense. God, okay, got it, cool. Like, all right, whatever. Okay, now Jesus, he absolutely meant for this to be jarring. He absolutely meant for this to make us uncomfortable and for us to be like, what is, what is he saying? Like, what? Like gasp, right? One of those moments. Okay, and so I don't want to take away from that, but however, the words love and hate in this context do not, do not mean what we might think they do, okay? Because even in the English language, like, these words aren't very helpful if we really think about it, right? Like, we don't use these words literally all the time. In fact, I think I would argue most of the time we use these words, we're using them non-literally. For example, I love pizza rolls. And I love my wife. If that word love means the same thing in both of those sentences, then like my marriage is in some deep trouble. Right? And so, and this was the same thing in this context. Okay, the same is true for the word hate, right? Like I hate cauliflower, but I also hate Billy over there. Okay, like it, it, the, the nuances, they have nuances now and they had new nuances back then, okay? So Jesus did not mean relational, emotional hatred here. Jesus does not want you to go and fight with your family and denounce them in order to follow him. No, like... Love and hate during this time were also used to refer to devotion and allegiance. Like if you were to compare your devotion and allegiance to one thing, it would pale in comparison, almost as if you hated this thing. Jesus uses another example later, uh, a couple chapters later in Luke 16. He says, no servant can serve two masters. For either, and this is a popular one, right? For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Is Jesus saying here that you've got to hate your money in order to follow him? No. No, money's not bad. Money is not bad. What people do with money can be bad. Just like what people do with their money can be really good. Money's not bad. Money's not the issue. But in comparison to our allegiance to Jesus... Jesus has got to be at the top of the list. So when it comes to family, marriage, tribe, even ourselves, our devotion and allegiance to Jesus, again, it's got to be number one. And if Jesus is a politician, 
right? This is just the most like arrogant and presumptuous thing you've ever heard in your life, right? But if Jesus is our guide and we understand that he knows this terrain better than we do, and he knows that if we give our devotion and our allegiance to anyone or anything other than him, that we are in deep trouble and that we will be led down dead-end paths that will bring us nothing but grief and it will actually break our hearts. And it's actually in our allegiance to Jesus that our allegiance to these other things can come and find their true meaning and value in our lives. Jesus knows this, but you have to remember he was speaking to a completely different culture, right? And so he listed a couple things that needed to be demoted. Okay, one of them, one, if you're going to be, be his disciple, one of the first things he lists are family and tribe, and then he says ourselves, right? And he basically lists the two greatest idols in human history, family and self. And by idols here, I don't mean bad things. Okay, taking care of your family and taking care of yourself is a good thing. Okay, so good things in our lives that we then elevate to a place of idols, and we know that we've exalted them to idols when we look to those things for purpose, for identity, and for belonging. However, these things are not God, and they ultimately cannot provide for you purpose, identity, and belonging, because they will inevitably let you down. See, these are good things, but they are not God. And if we give our ultimate devotion to them, and allegiance to them, they will break our hearts and ruin our lives. And Jesus knows this. And so, like I said, you got to remember, who is he talking to here? What context is he speaking to or speaking in? Okay, because this was a different culture of the time. This would have been a very traditional, patriarchal culture. Where family was everything. Where every choice and every decision you made had the intentions of honoring to the utmost your family. You would marry the person who would bring your family the most prestige, wealth, and honor, right? Your career, well, you just, you would join the family business, okay? Your financial support and stability was your family. In fact, you would build your house right next to your parents' house or in the same little area, okay? And so what Jesus is asking people to do here was actually very scandalous, very scandalous in this time. And then even in our culture today, like even in the Christian evangelical subculture, like think about the way marriage and family is sometimes exalted. Hear me out here, like marriage and family is, is incredible, it's very good, like it's a very good thing. But when it becomes the thing that you find your purpose, identity, and belonging in, you're setting yourself up for some serious heartbreak. Because listen parents, when little Billy grows up and eventually begins to make choices that are, that are different from the choices you would make, or even make some bad decisions and make some mistakes, well, yes, that's going to break every parent's heart, but parents whose identity and worth are wrapped up in their child, it's going to break them. And it will not only affect you, but it will also affect your child, who you've elevated to a place and a role that they could never and, and were never meant to fill. And the same is true for marriage. It's like we forget that the two most important people in Christianity were single. Jesus and Paul, right? These two guys were single because we elevate this idea. <laughs> so I went to a Christian college for a little while. And so, and like, I can't tell you how often, like, it was, oh, my perfect, I'm just praying for my perfect person. That man's going to come around someday. 
And he's going to fill all the gaps in my life and just be perfect, right? And so, like, we, they're waiting around for this perfect person that's going to come along. And once I find that person, I won't ever feel lonely again. I will be accepted for all that I am. And those of you who are married here, you're like, ah, yeah, that's exactly how it is. <laughs> right? No. No. Not at all. Okay? <laughs> oh, man. And so when marriage, again, when marriage, too, is idolized like that, you are, you are asking your spouse or potential spouse to do something for you, fill something for you that they will consistently never measure up to. Never. And then, like, and then, like we, have the, we have the audacity to bring Jesus into this, and we're like, Jesus, what's going on, man? Like, I prayed for an awesome, perfect husband. I prayed for an amazing spouse. Right? I prayed for kids who are gentle and loving and kind and who obey every single word that I say. Like, I voted for you, Jesus. What is going on? Like, what? What? Jesus is like, huh? What? And this is exactly what Jesus is getting at. Like, here, he's, saying, he's trying to warn you. He's trying to warn you not to give your full devotion to family and tribe and marriage, but also to warn you not to make it you. Because on the flip side of the spectrum, Jesus says, if you don't hate your own self in comparison to your devotion and allegiance to me, you cannot be my disciple. Can you think of a culture who elevates itself more than anything else? Can anybody think of a, of a culture that we live in today? I'll just say, that elevates the self more than, more than family? We're all guilty of it. Can you think of a time where that exists, where we're in a, a culture where I can get what I want, when I want, how I want it? And what you end up with is a culture who's very mobile, where proximity, proximity to family like, isn't really that important because like, I can fly home for the holidays, right? No big deal. Okay? You know? And you end up with the people who aren't rooted. They're floating, detached individuals who are pursuing whatever it is that's going to fill their highest allegiance, which is their own self-actualization and fulfillment. And so they float from relationship from relationship, from city to city, from job to job, from church to church, depending on what that church offers at the time, right? Like, this is the kind of worship I like, so I'm going to go. This is the kind of teaching I like, so this is where I'm going to go, right? This is the kind of preaching I like. Whatever specific need in that season that I have, like in that church meets, I'm going to go there until they don't meet that need anymore, and then I'm just going to go somewhere else because... They don't mean, they, they, I'm not being fed anymore or whatever. And so I'll just move on to the next one that offers me what I need. And what you end up with is a culture who can't find fulfillment, but who are perpetually looking for it. Can I be honest with you? There's no job, no city, no relationship or church that is going to be good enough to give you what you're looking for. And Jesus knows that if your ultimate allegiance is to anything other than him, it is a dead end. So Jesus addresses this huge crowd and he says, he says, some of you are exalting family and tribe. Some of you are exalting your own self-fulfillment. And he's sifting the crowd. Because he knows that anything he says will not make any sense if he is not your ultimate allegiance. Do you actually intend to follow Jesus? to take a different path that many other in our cultures around us are, are, are so disillusioned by? Are you willing to give up this dream of self-fulfillment or this dream that somehow family or marriage can, can meet your deepest needs? 
Paul the Apostle in Galatians 2.20, he says, he says that he grounds himself in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There, my friends, that is a sense of purpose, identity, and belonging that no one can take from you. Because it doesn't actually matter if your marriage falls apart. It doesn't actually matter if your children are far from you. If your job is falling apart. Because the Son of God loves you and gave himself for you. And that is something you can take to and even through the grave and into new life. Nothing else can do that. There's no job, child, or spouse that you can take with you to the other side. Jesus knew this was going to be difficult. He knew this. That's why he he spoke the way that he did. Avoiding idols and family and self right, to be his disciple, he knew, he knew that you would have to intentionally make this choice, right? You don't just unintentionally become a disciple of Jesus. You don't just wake up one, oh, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Nope. You have to be intentional. You have to be intentional, especially if you're going to place your ultimate allegiance in him, this is why he says this is why he says this in verse 28. He says for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise when he has laid a foundation and he's not able to finish it all who sees it will begin to mock him saying this dude he began to build and isn't able to even finish. Or what kind of king goes out to encounter another king in war and will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. These two parables here, these two stories are about counting the cost. Counting the cost of what? Becoming a disciple. Becoming an apprentice of Jesus. So right after he charges the crowd about their allegiances, Jesus asks them to consider for themselves what it's going to mean for them. Count the cost. If you're going to start something, be my disciple, you'd better sit down and do the math first. Do you realize what this means? It is not going to be easy. There are difficult and dangerous paths ahead. You need to think this through before you decide to follow me. So in these parables, of course, Jesus totally means sit down, right, and intentionally think about, intentionally consider following him. Don't just sit down in the crowd and think that makes you a follower of Jesus. I love this quote by Vance Hanver. He says, grace is free, but it is not cheap. People will take anything that is free, but they are not interested in discipleship. They will take Christ as Savior, but not as Lord. In other words, count the cost. It's definitely what Jesus is saying here. However, something new struck me when I was reading this passage. Notice what happens in both cases. In both cases, the man counts the cost, the king deliberates, and yet both of them come up short. Right? Both of them come up short. Okay, so Jesus tells us to count the cost, but then he also tells us no matter what calculator you use, you are going to come up short. Both parables 
are about failure after counting the cost. Because when we sit down and count the cost of intentionally following Jesus, of intending to follow Jesus, we inevitably come to the conclusion that we do not have what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus. And that's exactly the conclusion Jesus wants us to make here. Because it is in that moment when the Son of God loves us and gives himself for us and moves towards us in our own inability to follow him. And then Jesus talks about salt because that's what Jesus does, right? He'll get really intense for a second and then he'll be like, but the birds and the trees and the flowers and salt. Salt is good. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for, manure, for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And I think, I think this is where Jesus is going with this. He said, because he, Jesus referred, salt of the earth and light of the world is how Jesus, Jesus referred to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5. Okay? They're people who are going to stand out in the darkness and preserve and bring flavor to the world. How would God's disciples do this? Through good works. Matthew chapter 5. And by good works, Jesus means acts of love, sacrifice, of generosity in our community and in our world. But how does one become salty? How does one become salty? How does, how does salt become salty? Because salt can't make itself salty. No, it's actually by realizing we can't be salty on our own that Jesus makes us salty. <laughs> Does that make sense? I hope so. It is through the grace and power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that we can be salty and do good works. It is by recognizing, sitting down and counting the cost and realizing that we cannot follow Jesus on our own strength, that Jesus can move towards us and show us the way, rescue us, and carry us even if he needs to. It is by placing our ultimate devotion in he who will never leave us nor forsake us. So we're going to worship here. And uh, so I, I'll invite the band to come up. And as we worship, I would just encourage you guys. I would encourage you to consider what it is that you need to hate. What is it? What is it that still has a hold of your heart and allegiance that you need to give up because you cannot and will not find life there, friends? So what is it? And I hope you choose to give it up today because you do have to choose it. You have to be intentional about it because Jesus wants to guide you to a better place. And it won't be easy, but you're not alone. Jesus is with you. If you need prayer, if you'd like to talk, come find me or someone, someone else here on staff. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. Because we're here for you too. And we're here to walk with you as well. Can I just pray for you guys before we, before we dive into worship? Jesus, you spoke boldly 
about these things, God, because they were serious. And because they meant a lot. Jesus, you ask for our devotion. You ask for our ultimate allegiance because it is only you. Only you where we can find purpose, identity, and belonging. Everywhere else, Lord, is a false path and you know this. You want to guide us. So Jesus, I pray this morning, God, whatever it is, what is it that we need to hate? What is it that needs to pale in comparison to you in our lives, Lord? And God, we give that up to you. God, we surrender that to you. God, we will not be slaves to it any longer. Jesus, I thank you for your work on the cross. I thank you that as you faced towards Jerusalem, you knew what you were going to do and you knew what it meant for us. God, I pray this morning as we worship, we'd consider these things and we consider what it looks like to count the cost and to recognize that we need you. We need you more than anything else. Amen.